Well, good morning again. We now turn to the living and abiding Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 10? Matthew chapter 10. We've been back in the Gospel of Matthew for a couple of weeks now. And for this whole chapter, Jesus has been teaching the apostles what to expect on the mission He is sending them on. Remember, this all began with Jesus looking at the crowds and having compassion on them because, he said, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then his response to that problem was to send his apostles as under-shepherds, laborers in the harvest, to care for and proclaim his kingdom to these lost sheep. But his teaching has shown us that they won't just be helping and proclaiming the good news. Instead, Jesus has told them and us that we will face opposition and persecution on our mission in this world. But remember back to last week, Jesus never gives us bare commands to endure and to press on. Instead, he backs those commands up with his astounding promises, the promise of help by his Holy Spirit the watchful care of our Father, and ultimately the victorious return of Jesus Himself. That's what we saw last week in chapter 10, verses 16 to 33. This week we're going to begin in verse 34, and Jesus concludes that teaching to His disciples, and He does so by continuing to talk about the challenges, the opposition that they're going to face on their mission. In our, pas- in our passage today, Jesus hones in on a loss for them and for us that's extremely personal, the loss of family relationships. But in the midst of that loss, he tells us about his generosity and the blessings that he gives to those who follow him. Jesus never takes away without giving back. He is a God who is generous, not stingy. And so every call to sacrifice is met with the rewards of following Jesus. That's what we're going to see in this text today. But before we hear from God's Word, we need to ask for His help. Would you go to Him with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we now read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love Your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. 
The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this passage today, we're going to look at the two paragraphs, verses 34 to 39 and 40 to 42. In in that first paragraph, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see that loss that Jesus is telling us about. And then we're going to see what he says about the right ordering of our loves. Then in verses 40 to 42, we're going to see three blessings that Jesus promises us in the midst of our loss. Jesus begins by telling his disciples about a loss they're going to experience. You can tell with the opening words that he's giving a correction. He starts with, do not think that I have come to bring peace. This is similar to what we saw at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Remember, there was some assumption out there about what Jesus was coming to do, about his mission, his purpose in coming to earth. And he needed to correct that assumption. He's doing the same thing here. But instead of a statement about his relationship to the law, Jesus corrects a misunderstanding about the effects of his mission. First, he denies their assumption. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. And then he corrects it. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This would have been a shocking statement for the disciples to hear, just like it's a shocking statement for us to hear. But we need to be clear about what Jesus is and is not saying, what kind of peace is he denying that he came to bring? Remember, just a few verses earlier, he told the apostles that they were to offer peace to the households and towns that they brought his message to. In Luke's gospel, the angels proclaim a message to the shepherd about what Jesus' birth means for the world. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In fact, the Old Testament promise was that the Messiah would come to bring peace to the earth. Isaiah 9 calls the Messiah the Prince of Peace and says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We know that the amazing result of the gospel is that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it can't be that Jesus isn't bringing peace at all. He is indeed bringing peace. And what does he mean? What kind of peace is he denying? The next few verses tell us. Look with me again at verses 34 or 35 to 36. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus is telling us that his coming to earth isn't going to mean ease and comfort for all of his followers. It's not going to mean quiet and tranquility and peacefulness for those who follow him. 
Instead, his mission will initially bring conflict. Jesus has been saying this for most of this chapter now. Remember last week he talked about the maligning and flogging and even death that would come to his disciples because they confess that he is king. But what we need to see here is how personal Jesus is making this conflict and this loss. He's not just promising conflict with your coworkers or your friends or your classmates. Jesus is promising that following him will bring conflict even with your own family. You will have enemies in your own household, he says. The reason this is so cutting is that our household almost always gives us our most comfortable relationships. Even if you don't always get along with your mom or dad or brother or sister or kids, they are so often a place of ease and comfort for you. They know you. They've known you your whole life, and their loyalty to you doesn't come from something that ebbs and flows, like shared interests or common friends. It comes from the fact that you share blood. You are a family. And just after Jesus has told us about the persecution you will experience in the world, Jesus tells you that even your family may not be a place of refuge for you. This is a massive loss that Jesus is bringing into our lives. And we need to acknowledge that this isn't hypothetical. We've talked a lot about persecution and how persecution isn't as prevalent here and now as it is in other parts of the world or at different times in the history of the church. But this is one that we get. Many of you in this room have conflict with family because you are following Jesus. Many of you have adult children who have left the Christian faith, which has fractured your relationship with them. Some of you in here have spouses who stay at home every Sunday when you come to worship. You have siblings or in-laws who scoff or even seethe at your Christian faith. Very few of those situations look like all-out war, but it is absolutely true that it has taken away family as a place of refuge for you. Jesus told us that this would happen. But look how Jesus follows this news. In a kind of weird twist, he follows it with a statement about how your love's should be ranked or ordered. Look at verse 37. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The language that Jesus uses in these verses is language of exclusivity. He does not allow his followers to love anything more than him. The language actually sounds a lot like the first commandment in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. In both places, this isn't just about which religion you pick. It's about putting other things in front of God. This is the language of idolatry. An idol is not just a physical object like a little Buddha or a statue of Baal. An idol is anything that you put in place of God. Remember the quote of Martin Luther on this first commandment. He says, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. 
we should notice how amazing of a statement this is by Jesus and what it says about his identity, about who he is. If some charismatic leader of a movement or some charming new friend said to you, if you don't love me more than your own family, you aren't worthy of me. We would think that that person was crazy or cruel. It's because that person has no right to claim that kind of position for himself. Only one person has the right to demand that kind of loyalty and position. The God of the universe. Jesus can rightfully demand our love and loyalty because he is God himself. He's not just a good teacher or the founder of a religion. He is the infinite son of God. He's the one who made you, who knit you together in your mother's womb. He's the one who came to save you from your sin and bought you with his own blood. And so Jesus is the only one who truly has the right to say that worshiping or loving or clinging to anything or anyone else above him is idolatry. We get this when the choice is stark, when it's clear that we're choosing between two different things. When you have family members who hate Jesus and are telling you to reject him, we see that we cannot choose them over him. That's part of what Jesus is saying. He's just brought up conflict with mothers and fathers for following Jesus. When your mom or child or spouse is demanding that you choose them instead of following Jesus, you must choose Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just say this about family members who reject him. He says it about all family members. You cannot love your children or your parents or your spouse more than Jesus and still follow him, he says. This is why idolatry is so difficult. We don't just make idols out of bad things. We make idols out of good things too. The French reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual forge of idols or an idol factory. We are experts in taking God's good gifts and turning them into little gods, giving our ultimate love to them. And Jesus here is pointing out our temptation to do that with our families. We had a great question about this in our Sunday school class last week because it's so often hard to tell. How do I know that I'm making something into an idol? The reason that it's so hard to tell is that we aren't just called to follow Jesus and abandon everyone else. Jesus actually commands us to love and care for the members of our family. Jesus himself will repeat the fifth commandment to the Pharisees. Honor your father and your mother. And he chastises them for finding ways of getting around that command. The New Testament teaching on the love and sacrifice that we're called to in marriage is an amazingly high bar. 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians tell us that, call, that that calling remains even when your husband or wife isn't a Christian. So Jesus isn't contradicting his own commands to love and provide for and care for your family. But how do you know if you're loving them more than him? There were several really helpful answers given in the class, and a story that a couple of them made me think of was the story of the rich young man 
in Matthew 19. I won't ruin the story since we'll get there soon, but the ending of the story is that Jesus tells the rich young man to sell all he has and follow him. And the text says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is what idolatry looks like when it is exposed. It can exist alongside Jesus for a little while. But when a choice comes between obeying the commands of God and serving your idol, you choose your idol. So a litmus test for each of us when we think about the things we rightfully love in our own life is this. Do you choose serving them over obedience to God? Here Jesus is obviously talking about loving family more than him, but look how he extends it in the following verses beyond family. Verses 38 and 39 say, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is not just saying that you can't love father or mother or children more than him. He is saying that you can't love anything more than him, not even your own life. We hear the word cross, and it's so normal to us that it has lost its shock. The cross was an instrument of torture and death. It was a symbol of shame and dishonor. Jesus is telling us that if we aren't willing to take those things along with Jesus, then we won't have him. We must not love anything above Jesus. Not our comfort, not our success, not our security, not our families, not our money, not our reputation, not our plans for happiness. Instead, we must be willing, he says, to lose our life. You might hear all that and think, what awful news. How would anyone want to give up everything just to get one thing? But look closely at what verse 39 says that we just read. He said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the key to everything we are talking about here. Jesus is not demanding that we ultimately lose everything. The gospel is not the news of loss. It is the news of gain. It's not the news of sorrow. It is the news of joy. Jesus is telling us how to find joy. How to find gain. He says the one who does what he just said, the one who lets go of everything, who puts everything second to Jesus, that person will find true life. But the one who clings to his life, the one who won't let anything go, the one who shoves Jesus behind family and success and money, that person will lose true life. The idolatry that we're talking about isn't just wrong. It's bad. It's destructive to you. It steals joy instead of giving it. Living your life for money and stuff will never bring you joy because you weren't made for money. Spending all of your energy on your job and success 
will never give you a fulfilled life because you weren't made for work. Sports and leisure and hobbies are all good gifts of God. But if you put them in the prime place in your life, your life will be a wreck. The destruction gets even worse when we think about idolizing people. When you put all of your hope and worth in your spouse, or maybe in the possibility of a spouse, you won't just find yourself empty, but you will also crush your spouse. They were never meant to be your everything, and they will collapse under the weight of that pressure. The same is true for your kids, or your grandkids, or your friends. If you put them in the place of God, the place where you are going to them for your hope and your joy and your fulfillment, you will find yourself empty, and they will fold under the weight of those expectations. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus tells you that you must love him and give yourself to him above everything else in this life, he is saying it for your good. You were made to worship God, not your spouse. You were made to find your fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus, not in your kids. He is rightly ordering your life so that you can truly find your life. And not just so that you can truly find your life, but that, so that you can also truly love your spouse and your kids and the gifts of God. Those gifts are only truly enjoyed when they are enjoyed in their proper place, which is not in the place of God, but receiving them as good gifts from the hand of God. It's only in worshiping God and God alone that we can finally enjoy the good gifts that He gives us. And the next section of Jesus' teaching turns to some of those good gifts. Look with me at verses 40 to 42 again. He says, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus speaks time and time again in the Gospels about loss, like he's been doing in this chapter. Loss of comfort, loss of family, loss of life even. But Jesus never talks about loss as an end in itself. Jesus never takes away without giving back. As the hymn Joy to the World reminds us, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so Jesus turns now from the loss that we experience as Christians to the gifts and rewards that He gives back. There are three gifts Jesus points us to in these verses. The first one comes in that amazing first sentence. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Notice the equation that Jesus sets up. It's an equation he's already set up on the other side of the ledger. Remember what he said back in verses 25 and 26. He said, a servant is not above his master. If they hated Jesus, they will also hate us. But now he says the opposite. 
The way that a person treats you as a Christian, in this case, the giving of hospitality, the welcoming, the reception of a Christian, that is equated with the way that they have treated Jesus. And then he continues to say that their treatment of him is equated to how they treat his Father who is in heaven. This is the biblical picture of union with Christ. When you become a Christian, you don't just punch a ticket to heaven or join a club or sign on to a new way of living. When you become a Christian, you are inseparably united to Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of metaphors for this in Scripture. A branch that is grafted onto a vine. A wife united to her husband. A body that is joined to its head. We don't just wear his team name. We are united to him and he to us. The primary way that Scripture tells us this happens is by the Holy Spirit coming to live in us. This is the greatest blessing the gospel gives. Sin alienated you from relationship with God. But because of Jesus, you are joined with the triune God in loving relationship with Him. And this is actually the greatest way we are able to fight the idolatry that we just talked about. It's true that turning someone into an idol hurts them. And it's also true that when you try to find fulfillment in idols, you come up empty. But the greatest truth we must remember is that our true fulfillment can only be found in Jesus. The real way to beat the temptation of idolatry is to see the beauty and the life and the joy that we find in Jesus. There's a wonderful old hymn titled, Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him? that talks about beholding the beauty and glory of Jesus. And there's this amazing line in the hymn that talks about what this does to our idols. I said it's an old hymn, so it has some these and thous. I'm going to read it slow. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Captivated by His beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring, Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now unrivaled king. What that hymn is saying is that if you just try to fight your idols with sheer willpower, it won't work. Not a sense of right or duty. Instead, you must turn your eyes to Jesus. Listen to that line. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. A worth that has no peers, no equals. When we see that, the unparalleled beauty and worthiness of Jesus, we will crown him as the king with no rivals in our lives. This is the way that the blessing of our union with Jesus fights our idolatry. By turning and looking upon him and seeing his beauty, the seeming beauty of the idols of the earth fades away. The next blessing is closely tied to this one, and it comes in that word, receives. Remember the context of what's happening in this passage. Jesus is sending these apostles out into Galilee on a mission, just as he sends us on a mission to the ends of the earth. And he sends us out, he says, as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
He just told us that even our family, our closest relationships, may no longer be a place of refuge and comfort for us. So what does he promise here? He promises a new place of refuge and comfort. This is a picture of the church. The Bible teaches that when you are united to Jesus, it is not just you who are united to Him. You are also united to everyone else who is united to Him. That's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the image of a body and a head. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Jesus is the head, and we all constitute the body. You are not just individually joined to Jesus. We are all joined to Him. And the New Testament tells us that this new community, this new body of believers, is a family. We call each other brother and sister. We've been adopted by God the Father and are members of His household. And so in the midst of loss of relationships that bring refuge and comfort, Jesus provides us with new ones. This is not to say that the biological family doesn't matter anymore. We already talked about the clear teaching of Scripture that those relationships remain and we're commanded to love and care for our family. And praise God that many of us in here have the double blessing of having family members who are also Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. But again, this is not just a hypothetical blessing. How many of you in here have seen your church act like your family, especially when your biological family hasn't been that? Bringing meals when you are sick, babysitting your children, helping you move, weeping with you when you are weeping, and rejoicing with you when you rejoice. This is one of the great gifts that Jesus has given to us. He has given us a family in His church. Then the final gift that Jesus promises is put simply as reward throughout these verses. The Gospel of Matthew speaks of our reward 12 times, but it never defines exactly what reward is. But what's clear is that the reward that a Christian longs for is something that's in the future. This is Jesus again doing what he did in our text last week, drawing our eyes forward to eternity. This life is a life of much loss for a Christian. We know the blessings of being united to Jesus and having fellowship with the church and having the care of our Father. But Jesus has also promised us the loss of family the persecutions of the world, and the suffering of fighting our sin. The Christian life is hard. But Jesus promises us that it won't always be this way. Jesus began by saying that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, conflict, and challenge. But the sword is only temporary. The conflict Jesus speaks of has an expiration date. There will come a day when you will no longer experience the sufferings of this life. You will no longer experience the sorrow of this world or the pains of broken relationship or even the temptation to make God's good gifts into idols. In that day, we won't just get a better situation. No, we ourselves will be made new. 
Our hearts will be made whole, perfectly loving our Savior and rightfully loving all of His gifts after Him. There will be no sin, no death, no sadness or sorrow, only the joy and life and eternal peace that come from being with God. In the midst of the sorrow and loss of this life, Jesus points us forward to that day. Would you all pray with me? Father, we ask that you would turn our eyes to Jesus. That in the midst of both joy and sorrow, we would see him and see his beauty and see the peerless worth that is found in him. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to that beauty, even as we wrestle with our sin and fight against the idols of this world. We pray that you would draw us more and more to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.